Welcome to another podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. You can find out more about CGI Burlington on our website at cgiburlington.org. Turn with me, if you would, as we begin to Leviticus 23. Thank you to Brother Morley for that very passionate message. Good start to the kick off of the fall holy days as we start to transition our minds from summer to fall and the fall holy days that as I say are around the corner and we see in Leviticus chapter 23 as we know the feast days of God and coming up we've got four of them the feast of atonement, feast of trumpets, feast of atonement, feast of tabernacles and concluding that the eighth day or the last great day. What I'd like to do today is to begin the process of turning our minds to feast mode, not feast of tabernacles mode, but the entire festival mode for the fall holy days. To begin, I'd like to drop down to the Feast of Atonement. We know the Feast of Trumpets begins on Thursday or Wednesday evening at sunset. We see that in verse 23. That, of course, pictures the second, in part, pictures the second coming of Jesus Christ. And we'll hear some of that message and those lessons on Thursday. When we look at the Day of Atonement, and as I say, this day often gets overlooked for a number of reasons. The Lord, verse 26, spoke to Moses, saying, Also the tenth day of this seventh month shall be the Day of Atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. And you shall do no work on that same day, for it is the day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For any person who is not afflicted in soul on that same day shall be cut off from his people. And any person who does any work on that same day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You should do no manner of work, and it shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict your souls on the ninth day of the month at evening. From evening to evening, you shall celebrate your Sabbath. There's a few things that make this day special. Clearly, the Sabbath is defined here from sunset to sunset. It puts to rest any daytime Sabbath that we've seen in recent uh, number of years, different uh, sets of writings come out that try to show that the Sabbath is early from sun up to sun down. This puts to, puts to rest that very clearly. It also makes a slight difference in the work that is allowed on the Sabbath. We notice it says in other places it says no servile work because that allows for preparation of some food. And in, in, in Hebrew times, the preparation of the of the food associated with sacrifices and all, all of those things and the fact that it was a feast day. Here, there was no work to be done at all. So there's a slight difference there. And thirdly, it has this odd phrase here that tells us to afflict our souls. What does that mean? If you look up in Strong's Concordance, the word soul, it is that same word that we heard about recently from Brother Adrian, nefesh. It's 5315 from the Hebrew concordance, nephesh, which basically means the physical being. If you go back to, briefly back to Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2, 
and in verse 7, we see this word used here. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being, or a nephesh. And we know that specifically relates to what makes us physical, what makes us a human being here on this on planet Earth. The word afflict is the Hebrew word 6031, and it's the Hebrew word ana, A-N-A. And it means to be made low, to be weakened, humbled, or humiliated. So combining that with the fact that we are a physical being, to be made low or weakened, one concept here on the, as we approach the, the Day of Atonement is to have our physical beings made weak. How does this translate into going without food and water? If you go to uh, Psalm 35, Psalms 35, we see that David uses these exact same words here in Psalms 35. We'll cut into the context here in verse 13. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled myself with fasting, and my prayer would return to mine own heart. So since Nafesh refers to our physicality, and, and Mr. Armstrong, Mr. Herbert Armstrong clearly explained that very well for many years. What better way to have our nephesh made weak, low, and humble than to do it without food and without water for that 24-hour period? If we go now to Isaiah 58, as we continue to introduce the fall holy days here, and to turn our minds from summer, which has fled by so quickly, to the fall holy days, to we're not really, typically we don't look at the fall holy days as early as Labor Day, but in this year, the, the calendar has, has them much earlier than I, this will be my 37th or 38th year, I can't imagine it being, I don't remember the first week of school ever having to take off trumpets, uh, this is I'm sure as early as, I'm not a, a calendar proficient but I'm sure this has got to be as early as it, as it ever comes. Hebrew, or Isaiah 58 we won't read yet what was read by Daniel in the scripture reading. But we'll start in verse 1. Cry aloud and spare not, and lift, your voice, lift up your voice like a trumpet, and tell my people their transgression, and the house of Jacob their sins. They seek me daily, and delight to know my ways, and as a nation that did righteousness, and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls, and you take no notice? In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exploit all your laborers. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord. We see here God's indignation for his people for their completely opposite attitudes towards fasting. Is this the fast I have chosen? What you're doing here, your exploiting of your laborers, your fasting for strife and debate, is this the fast I've chosen for you, he says? Drop down to verse 9. 
Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking of wickedness. God is upset with his people at this time for their attitude towards fasting. So as we, again, turn our minds from regular living to focusing on this very special Holy Day season. Why would God, in the middle of the great harvest season, the great harvest, a little over a week after the beginning of the Holy Day season, when there's all of this to take in, all of the harvest to take in, and less than a week from that glorious week-long festival of tabernacles, why would he opt for a festival where we don't eat and don't drink in the middle of the harvest season? Where he wants to remind us to afflict our souls. Go back to Exodus chapter 20. What is at the heart of all sin? We see here his indignation towards his people for their sinful nature. When we go back to the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. take time to read them. I just take us there to point out the Decalogue. When we break any one of God's laws, either from this Decalogue or any of the laws that extend off the Ten Commandments, and we know in Matthew where Christ separates the love of God and the love of mankind and all of the Decalogue hangs off of those two, and then all other laws pretty much come off of, off of the Decalogue. And we see here that how the first four are focused completely on God and the second six, the last six, are focused completely on mankind, on an outward showing to everyone else. What is really at the heart of sin? Why does he need us in the middle of a harvest season to afflict our souls? Turn with me, if you would, to Proverbs. We'll read a couple of Proverbs to get at the heart of the matter. And this is not a message for atonement. It's actually a message for the entire festival season. It's just intriguing that in the middle of a great harvest, we stop and don't eat. Of all the times of the rest of the year, he could have put this in. Why not do it in a non-harvest time when there's so much abundance? But he does it in the middle of the harvest. Proverbs 14 and verse 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the ways of death. There is a way that seems right to mankind. But it leads to death. Flip over a couple of pages to the 16th proverb, chapter of Proverbs, the 16th chapter of Proverbs, and it is repeated again verbatim. There is a way that seems right to a man, but to its end is the way of death. Pride is at the heart of sin from the very beginning. When Lucifer first entertained the idea that he wasn't satisfied with life, or his position that God had given him. And when we see all of God's laws and how they point outward to God or to our fellow man, when we sin, we're basically pointing inward to ourselves. We're, we're worrying about ourselves. We're worrying about, about our feelings, our sense of uh, satisfaction. So as we are about to embark on the time of year known as the Great Harvest Celebration, it is good to get a reminder from our Creator that we are not all we think we're cracked up to be. We're simply nafesh, 
We're simply physical pieces of dirt who exist day to day at his divine will. There are many things that we study at this time of year in relation to the Day of Atonement. The two goats, the high priests with their only opportunity of the year to enter the Holy of Holies, the physical or spiritual meaning of fasting. Today, in the time that we have left here this afternoon, as we're, again, change our focus a little bit here, I'd like to examine the sin of pride and why God devotes one of his holy days to the affliction of the soul. If we are to be reminded of the need to be humble, let's examine what has led to this need, pride and its debilitating effects on the people of God. What we're going to start out with is we're going to look at a historical review of Scripture to show that pride has been at the heart of sin from the beginning to the end of recorded time. Of course, we know the story of, of Lucifer. We know the story of Adam and Eve. Let's begin, for sake of time, to, in Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. The uh, youth and what amounts to basically everyone else, because our youth study pretty much has the entire church downstairs uh, uh, from week to week. This almost amounts to a review, it would seem, of some of the stories we've covered in the last six months. What we see at the Tower of Babel, or Babel, verse 1 of Genesis 11. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. We know the history here, coming falling on the heels of God destroying the earth because of man's sin. And we could, we could talk about pride in relation to mankind at the time of Noah. We, we won't do that here today. And these, the eight or nine examples I've chosen here to start are not obviously all-encompassing of every example of pride. But it didn't take long after God cleaning up the earth for mankind to fall back into his sinful ways. And it came to pass as they journeyed, verse 2, from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they said to one another, Come and let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, and let us build ourselves a city, and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Any mention of God in there? There's none. Let us do this for us. Let us do this, so we can feel good about ourselves. We'll, we'll make this great big tower for our glorification, so we feel good and that we recovered from this, our, this history of this long flood where we were destroyed, but now we're good and we can build ourselves back up again. Let us build for ourselves, they said. First Samuel chapter 15. First Samuel chapter 15. This is briefly touched on downstairs in the youth study today by Sister Olivia, referring back to Saul. And Saul, we know, was chosen because at one point he was a good man. He was a, he was a kingly man when, when the people of, of Israel rejected Samuel as their, as their leader, rejected his sons. And wanted a king, God gave him Saul. And we know that over the course of time, Saul, Saul's continuing trust in himself and his continuing loss of trust in God 
led him to the point where, in this case here, he thought of a better way to do things than what God had told, than what had God in, through Samuel had told him to do. Verse 10 tells us that God said to Samuel, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, he cried out to the Lord all night. Remember the last time God said he regretted something, he flooded the earth. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told to Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he has set up a monument for himself. A monument for himself, and he has gone up gone on around and passed by and gone on to Gilgal. Samuel went to Saul and said, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. His pride had gotten the, the gist of himself so much that he actually believed he was obeying God. And we don't know whether he, if he was lying to Saul here or lying to Samuel or whether he had, as the human condition is, you tell yourself so often enough a lie that you turn, you start to believe it. I, I, the human condition tells me, in my opinion here, that he actually believed he was obeying God. And then Samuel said, "What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the, the lowing of the oxen which I hear? They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen, and to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed." We kept some stuff back because we were going to give it to God. God doesn't want what he doesn't want. There's no sense forcing stuff on God that he doesn't want when God has given a strict and utter command. Samuel said to Saul, be quiet, and I will tell you what the Lord told me last night. And here is the gist of what has, at the heart of pride, Samuel here, it can be said many ways, but Samuel here wraps it up in this verse 17. When you were little in your own eyes. When you were little in your own eyes, that is the source of pride. Here, Saul thought of a better way to do things. But it was when he was little, in his own eyes, he was, he was workable. He was a good leader when he was small, when he had a humble mind. Judges 21. Again, getting a, a brief synopsis of the historical record here. We now go to a time... We go back to the time. Of the judges, just before Samuel. And we look at the last verse of Judges, which incorporates several centuries here of man, God's people doing things the wrong way again, God using... These warriors to drag them out of the messes they had gotten themselves into. And the writer of Judges gives a synopsis of this entire period of time here in verse 25 when he said, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. An entire, an entire historical period wrapped up in the phrase, they all did what they thought was right to themselves. No focus on God. No focus on keeping in mind what, what they should have known. They just did what was right in their own eyes. 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11. Moving forward, past, from Saul, past David, to Solomon. 
And again, we recount the story of Solomon, a man specifically chosen by God to follow David, who, when he started, he too was small in his own eyes. Given that opportunity to choose whatever he could wish for, he chose wisdom. He didn't choose riches, he chose wisdom. We would all be so blessed to have made that decision. But again, over the course of time and allowing foreign gods, as we know, into the mix and to have several marriages and relationships with women of of various religions allowing other gods in, we see that Solomon's heart turned. And we see that here in chapter 11. Verse 1 tells us, Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Sidonians, the Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord has said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. God knows what he's talking about. It's pretty simple to follow if we just, if we just follow his simple commands. But Solomon clung to these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. His heart wasn't focused on God or his fellow man. It was focused on how he felt. How these 700 wives, 300 concubines made him feel. When he was old, that his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. So Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites, and Solomon, Solomon not only didn't follow God, he did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord as did his father David. So his pride, his focusing on how he felt, how these women made him feel, turned his back on God and was self-consumed. And in, in, as is written here, became evil in the sight of God. Not many years later, we see Jeroboam given the opportunity to have the kingdom of Israel completely under his care. Again, some of this, some of this we've already studied recently in the youth studies, so we won't go over the story of Jeroboam specifically, but I just draw your attention to God's judgment on him. In the 14th chapter of 1 Kings, down in verse 7, Go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you ruler over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. I did this for you. I gave you the opportunity to be the king over all of Israel. I took it away from the house of David, except for that one little remnant so he could remain true to David. And yet... Verse 8 continues, You have not been as my servant David, who kept my commandments, and who followed me with all his heart, to do only what was right in my eyes. But you have done more evil than all who were before you. For you have gone and made yourself other gods, and molded images to provoke me to anger, and have cast me behind your back. Again, several different ways for God to describe pride. But here, Jeroboam is described here as having cast God behind his back. Remnants, it calls to mind 
when Christ to Satan said, get thee hence. Get behind me. Here, God felt that that's exactly what Jeroboam did. You tossed me aside and threw me aside. All that I did for you, you've achieved this just because of me. This is what I gave you. And you flicked me aside behind your back. Isaiah chapter 2. Continuing through the historical record to Isaiah chapter 2. As Isaiah here begins the recounting of the sins of Judah, that has forced God into allowing them to enter into a period of captivity, we could read pretty much at least the first three chapters of Isaiah to get the source of pride here and all that Judah was doing. But for purposes of time here, we're going to look at the second chapter and we're going to start in verse 8. And just note the details of what God is angry with his people. Their land is also full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands, that which their own fingers have made. People bow down, and each man humbles himself. Therefore, do not forgive them. They don't bow down to to stuff I've given them. They worship and humble themselves before stuff they've made themselves. Enter into the rock, verse 10, and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty. The lofty looks of man shall be humbled. The haughtiness of men shall be bowed down. And the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty. Upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up. And upon all the oaks of Bashan. Upon all the the high mountains. And upon all the hills that are lifted up. Upon every tower. Upon every high tower. And upon every fortified wall. Upon all the ships of Tarshish, and upon all the beautiful sloops, the loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day, but the idols he shall utterly abolish. There's coming a time when man's pr- there will be no room for pride. Man's pride will have no place. It will be completely eradicated by God, so that his plan can take effect. We know in Isaiah 14, if we turn there to Isaiah 14, Isaiah looking back at the fall of Lucifer, and again, note the pride that is being discussed here. Verse 12 tells us, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, notice that you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven, and I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, and I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. I, 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 I. Culminating in, I will be like God. The Hebrew word for like there is 18:19, and it is dama, and it means comparable to. Compa- equal in status to God was his intention. It wasn't enough to be the, the shining star of the morning. It wasn't enough to be 
the best that God had ever created to that point. He wanted to be God. I will be comparable to the Most High. And we see what that one decision has made throughout the course of history. Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. As we continue this look, and we see the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Something we know well, but it serves to review here in this context. Verse 9 begins, And he spoke this parable, Christ himself spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. So he specifically chose a group of people. This wasn't just a general parable, but it was a parable to hit at a specific group of people for a specific reason, and that was people who who were self-righteous, people who proclaimed themselves righteous based on their deeds. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. Interesting how he worded that. Didn't say he prayed to God, he prayed with himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I re- we recall, I don't recall whether it was Deacon Jen or Brother Adrian who talked about the, the Jewish men who would pray every day. It was Deacon Jen that talked about how the Jewish men would be thankful that they were not born a woman or a Gentile. Proof right here in the text. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this pithy little tax collector. I, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the, you recall back when we read Isaiah 58 that that's what he was talking about, this fact. This is the fast you're doing? You're fasting to talk about yourself? To point out to me how great you are? I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Uh, Bill Watson, Pastor Bill Watson, has a, often says, um, he uses the phrase, my name is Bill Watson, and I'm a recovering sinner. That's the same the same gist of mindset here that this tax collector said here. He didn't even want to look up at God. It was how beat down he felt when he realized his sins. But the Pharisee, it was look at me God. Look at how great I am. We see as we see this, this sin of pride that has been at the heart of sin. It is the, the, the main reason for sin from the beginning of time. Right from the time that Lucifer said I'll be like God. I want to be comparable to God. Third John, the letter in third, the third letter of John. Let's go there. The third letter of John. Verse nine. We're going to look at this man named Diotrephes, a man in the church, a leader in the church, and the apostle John writes. 
in verse 9, I wrote to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to have the preeminence among them, does not receive us. Therefore, if I come, I will call to mind his deeds, which he does, prating against us with malicious words, and not content with that. He himself does not receive the brethren and forbids those who wish to, putting them out of the church. We have a leader of the church who's a leader because he likes the preeminence. That the Greek word philoproteu, the preeminence means loves to be first or has ambitions of distinction. They live, he lives to be the best. He lives to have distinction. He lives to be thought of as the best or as first. And this prating, this word for prating means to berate idly for no reason at all. To berate just to berate. No purpose behind it. So to be malice or to have hurtful words just for the sake of doing of that. So when you have someone, when you have an attitude of loving the preeminence, the way to stay there is to beat everybody else down. To make yourself feel good. There's no focus. That actually breaks both halves of the commandments. It puts yourself above God, and it puts yourself above your fellow man. And John here was warning the church that this was within their congregation. This wasn't some worldly uh, gentleman that was passing through. This was in the church, and this was one of their leaders who lived to be prideful. And he was not content. Those words are used right there in verse 10. Not, he was not content with that. But he wanted the glory for himself and for God. So as we can see, pride has been at the heart of man's sins from the time Lucifer first had his first evil thoughts right up until today. Pride is at the heart of sin. We go back to Matthew chapter 6. What about those, what about when we were actually working hard for God? The Bible has some things to say about how we feel when we're doing God's work. Because as we are approaching the fall festival season, God commands us to keep the festivals. This is something we are going to do to obey God. We keep the feasts because we obey God and we're doing His work. But His warning at the start of chapter 6, in verse 1, says to take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Again, at the heart of sin is intent. And here, take heed that you do not do your good deeds, your good works, to be seen by men. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. When you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. Note that very, very biting phrase. They have their reward. If we do it to be seen of men, we basically get a pat on the back from God, saying enjoy the praise 
because that's all you're going to get. That's all it's worth. If you do it for men, their praise will be all that, all that you get. So enjoy it while it lasts. They have the reward. And this is to God's people that do good works. Matthew chapter 5. Go back one page. And we'll look at a scripture we've looked at several times in the last number of months. But bears repeating. Again, we are, verse 14 tells us we are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they, that they may see your good works. That is true. People see our good works, but so that they glorify God. They don't glorify ourselves. We get no glory, because if, they, if, if we're doing, if we're the light of the world and that lamp on a hill, and we get the glory, that's, enjoy it. Because God is very clear that that's all we're going to get out of this. But if we point them to God, there's no pride involved. There's only the glorification of the Father. And that is our purpose as we serve, is not to serve ourselves, but to serve God and our fellow man. And again, this is something we've seen before, but I bring it to light in light of this message. Go to Philippians chapter 3. series of studies that Brother Adrian did on Philippians. We reviewed this there. Verse 15 of Philippians chapter 3. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this in mind. And again, God's writing to a mature church, his shining crown, his jewel. And if anything, if, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we've already attained, let us walk by the same rule and let us be of the same mind. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I've told you often, and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Many walk the walk. They do all the right things. They... they lead where they need to be led. They show up at church every week on time. They, they serve where they're asked to serve. They walk the walk. But here, Paul says, they're enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their own belly, and whose glory is in their shame. When you do it for prideful purposes, and you don't do it for God, the message is clear from start to finish throughout Scripture. We have a reward. And that is the good feelings we get while we're in these tabernacles for the 70 plus or minus years that we live on this earth. But to God's people who do it the right way, verse 20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. And there we see the connection between the Feast of Trumpets and the Feast of Atonement. It takes humility throughout our life to be ready for when the second coming of Jesus Christ comes to give us our new bodies and our new names. 
If we're in this for ourselves, if we're in this for the feelings that we have in our physical bodies, there will be no spiritual bodies. There will be no new name. We will have our reward. They'll say nice things about us at our funeral. They'll blow some trumpets perhaps at our funeral. We'll, we'll, have, some, we'll have some street named after us. We'll have some little, little corner of the congregation. This is Murray's Corner. But that will be our reward, is a little wooden sign. But our citizenship should be in heaven. We do not want to be counted among those whose God is their own belly. Turn back with me to Genesis 41 as we begin to wind this down. We read these stories time and time again. But every now and again, whenever your your mind is, is intent on something that you're reading, or something is on your mind, you'll see something you've read time and time again, and it'll just tweak you a little bit differently from time to time. And that's the beauty of Scripture. We know this story of Joseph and him, his interpretation of the Pharaoh's dreams. We'll, we'll drop down to verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, because you recall the chief butler reminded, remembered, that there was this fellow in his past that had interpreted dreams and got him out of jail. He called Joseph and he brought him quickly out of the dungeon and he shaved and changed his clothing and came to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. But I have heard it said of you that you can understand a dream and to interpret it. What would your reaction be to this? Sure, I can. Come with me. Let's sit down. Tell me about your dream, and I will interpret it for you. I can't believe it's taken all of these years for the chief butler to remember that I interpreted those dreams for him, that they came true. For some reason, God allowed me to stay in prison, but now you remember that I can interpret dreams. Joseph's answer was succinct. It is not me. God will give Pharaoh an answer in peace. I don't do it, Joseph says. God doesn't. He could have brought all the pride on himself. He could have interpreted that dream and taken all the glory. But he knew it was God that gave him those answers. And his answer was simple. It's not me. It's God. Back to Isaiah 58 as we conclude now. So we see, as we not just prepare our minds for the Day of Atonement, because as I say, as we get set to embark on this fall festival, we'll have the Feast of Trumpets this Thursday, as Deacon Jan was talking to us about how exciting it is that another Holy Day season upon us. And as the Feast of Trumpet ends on Thursday evening, it will be easy for us to say two more weeks to the feast. Two more weeks to the feast. We can't wait. Most of us, many of us, don't take vacation time except at the Feast of Tabernacles time. So we're counting down the weeks before we get our time off for the Feast of Tabernacles. So as the Feast of Trumpets ends on Thursday, it'll be two more weeks to the Feast of Tabernacles. Except there's the Day of Atonement. And we can't overlook that. Because in God's great wisdom and his great mercy, 
in the midst of this great grand harvest that he has for us, he makes us stop and afflict our souls. Because it's the one time of year that we get all of the, as Deuteronomy tells us, to go, if you can't bring all your stuff with you, go change it to money and go spend it to your heart's desires. It's this grand harvest. But God wants to remind us it's not about us. It's not about how we feel. It's a bit of a reward that God does give us as physical human beings to go to the feast and enjoy ourselves. There's nothing wrong with that. But as we see his warnings to people throughout time, when it becomes about you, we're in it for the wrong reasons. So before we get to go on this Feast of Tabernacles, he makes us stop for a day and not eat. And not do much of anything. Because as human beings, when we don't eat, there's not much energy for anything else. So again, in the midst of this great harvest, it was important to him to slow us down. See, before you get into the good stuff, remember why you're here. You're not here for your own pride. You're not here to engulf, engorge yourself and, 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 and spend your 10% in one week on everything that you can possibly do for yourself. But God's holy days are about his plan for all of mankind. And we won't be at the fulfillment of the Day of Atonement if we're not humble enough to be there to accept our new bodies when Christ comes on the the Feast of Trumpets. Because our time as committed people of God is the Feast of Trumpets. If, 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 we're, not, if, if we're not focused and we're not rising, if we don't rise to meet Christ in the air at the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement and the Feast of Tabernacles and their fulfillment is, is pretty much moot. So that's where we see the entire festival season combines. Isaiah 58, we see the purpose of fasting is not just to get through the fast day. It's not just to somehow make it through 24 hours without eating or drinking. But it's a mindset that God expects us to have on the Day of Atonement, throughout the fall festival season, and throughout the entire year. We read initially the first five verses that talked about his disgust with how they treated his ways. Verse 6, we pick it up. Is this not the fast that I have chosen to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out? When you see the naked, that you cover him, and not hide yourself from your own flesh. Then your light shall break forth like the morning, your healing shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the, the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and the speaking of wickedness, if you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness, and your darkness shall be as the noonday. Then the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Those from among you shall build the old waste places, and you shall raise up the foundations of many generations, and you shall be called the repairer of the breach and the restorer of the streets to dwell in. When we fast for right reasons, when we understand and accept the humility that fasting teaches us, on the Day of Atonement and throughout the holy day season and throughout the year 
We won't be like the Pharisees who say, God, look at me. Aren't I great? We will do what God expects here, as he says to us, for the poor, the hungry, and the downtrodden. So as we seek now to keep God's festivals, to obey God by by keeping his feasts, let's not overlook the Day of Atonement, because it's the attitude of the Day of Atonement that brings together all of his festivals. That attitude of humility, that when it is time that he descends from the air, we will rise with him. We will rise to meet him and descend with him. And may God guide and protect us during this festival season. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org. This has been a podcast from the Burlington Congregation of the Church of God International. We hope you are blessed by it. To find out more about CGI Burlington, visit our website at cgiburlington.org.